Father, we do thank You for an amazing Savior. We thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for His willingness to identify with us, to come to this earth, to bear our sins, that we might have life. So once again, we ask, Father, that tonight You would open up Your Word to us, You would exalt Your Son, and You would draw our hearts to Him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've been thinking about the emotions of Christ. And I want to just remind us all that of why we're going through this series. It's not just because it's an interesting topic, although it is an interesting topic. It's not just something to fill our time. But it is because the goal of the Christian life is to know Jesus Christ. That's the way Paul himself speaks of his one ambition is that he might know Christ. It's not just a knowledge, not just a mental knowledge knowing about Christ, but it is an experiential knowledge. That is our aim is to be conformed to Christ in the real outworkings of our life. Is it not? In the day-to-day living. And therefore, we're looking at His life. And part of being conformed to Christ's image is entering into His heart. What is it that animates the heart of our Lord? It's a big question. We've been thinking about that. What draws forth His compassion? What ignites His anger? What gives Him great joy? What causes Him to be astonished, as we saw last week? And today, tonight we're thinking about what grieves his heart. And I hope that we've seen in this series, I hope one of the things we've seen that's kind of been a thread through this whole series is something of God's great love, Christ's great love for us. The depth and strength of his love, his willingness to identify himself with us in our humanity. So tonight we're thinking about his grief the grief of Christ. And as we look at His grief, we're also looking at all of those emotions that accompany grief. Emotions like anguish and agony and and turmoil and distress and sorrow. We have lots of words to describe our suffering, this kind of suffering, emotional suffering. Well, what is grief? Let's begin with a definition. We say grief is a person's response to a loss. It's a normal, healthy response to loss. Grief is the way we are meant to respond respond to loss. And so we could say that at the heart of grief, at the root of grief, is a sense of loss. A sense of loss. What could be, is not, or will not be. And so we grieve. We, the, grief, the grief might be due to a, a loss of a loved one, due to death. This is probably the most acute sense of grief that we can experience as human beings. It may be the loss due to an estranged relationship. Someone who ought to be close is far away. It may be the loss of health or physical or mental capacity. We're losing something and we grieve over that loss. It may be the loss of a valued object or possession. 
Maybe we experience a fire, our home burns down, and the family pictures are destroyed. And we grieve. We value them, and we grieve. Or maybe we lose a wedding ring, and there's a sense of grief. Maybe it's the loss of a job or position. And on and on it goes, right? But as, as, you, as you think about that, you realize that there's a spectrum to grief. Not all grief is the same. And that spectrum goes from momentary sadness, maybe a brief sadness, to an intense experience of anguish and deep emotion and anything and everything between. But it's always connected with some sort of loss. Now what's interesting is that we not only grieve over things we lose, over personal loss, but it's also possible for us to grieve over someone else's loss. That is, we have the capacity as human beings to genuinely and truly enter into the grief of another person. To feel sorrow for their loss. In fact, what's interesting and fascinating is it's possible to even feel grief on behalf of another person who should be feeling grief but who isn't. Think about it in terms of a parent of an estranged prodigal child. Do they not grieve over their child? And that child might be completely blind to his loss. But still, the parents grieve for his sake. Now, grief is also connected to love. If you remember our session on anger, we noticed that anger is closely tied to love and so is grief. We grieve over the loss of things we care about, things we love. We don't grieve over things we don't care about. You don't grieve over the, the Amazon packaging uh, when you toss it into the, the recycle bin. You're not grieving over that because you don't care about that. You grieve about the object that was in the package. And maybe you would grieve over losing that. So grief is tied to love. We grieve when we lose or when someone we love loses something we perceive to be of value. And then we grieve. You might remember in our session on Jesus' anger, how we talked something, we talked about this. Remember that anger is opposing that which harms what we love. Remember that? Anger is being against that which is destroying what we love. Grief, though, is a little bit different. Grief and sorrow is what we feel when we lose what we love. When we lose what we love. But because they're both connected to what we love, there are times when we feel both emotions. These two emotions, grief and anger, can be intertwined. You see that in the life of Christ. At several places where anger and sorrow are intertwined in his experience. Well, let's think tonight about Jesus' grief. Let's observe that grief. And we're not going to be able to look at all of it. But I want to look at two major events. But before we get to those two major events, uh, I'm going to quote from Isaiah 53. You have it there in your notes. I wish I could read this entire chapter because the entire chapter really gives us a portrait of Christ's grief. But these two verses set us set us up. We read he was despised. And this is speaking of the Messiah, of Jesus. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Think with me just briefly here, just some of the grief he experienced. He was born in grief. Think about it. He was born with the stigma of being an illegitimate child. And it appears that he never lost that stigma, even all the way into his ministry years. That's grief. He knew the pain of being a righteous man, living in a sinful world. There's a fascinating passage in Second Peter. Peter is speaking of Lot, the Old Testament man Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. You remember that Lot? And, and, and he, Lot, that, guy, that man Lot decided to go live in Sodom, one of the most wicked places on earth at that point. And Peter, speaking of Lot, says this. He says, that righteous man, while living among them, was tormented in his righteous soul day by day by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Now, although we're told that Lot is a righteous man, we have to just be absolutely clear, it's not telling us that he was a sinless man. He was a man who was seeking to do what was right before God. But that does not mean he was a sinless man. But even here we have this man who's not sinless, who's tortured in his righteous soul day by day because of the lawless deeds that surrounded him. How much more did Jesus Christ suffer and was tormented in his righteous soul. Day after day, he, the perfect, sinless Son of God, surrounded by impurity, sinful men and women. Imagine that, living in the, with that day by day. We also we know that he knew the sorrow of being misunderstood. You remember that time when his own People from his own town came, perhaps his own family came to get him because they thought he was mentally unstable. Imagine the grief of being misunderstood. He knew the pain of rejection, the pain of being slandered. He knew the pain of being betrayed by one who was closest to him and being denied three times by his closest friend, one of his closest friends. That had to have hurt. Imagine the grief. Isaiah 53, though, tells us that he not only bore his own sorrow, but he also bore our sorrows. He bore our griefs. That is, Jesus didn't just distance himself from our pain, the pain of our humanity and sinfulness. He drew near and he came under it and he bore us up. He lifted us. And so tonight I want us to focus our attention on two particular events that occurred fairly close together. The first is what we call the triumphal entry. At least it takes place during the triumphal entry. and It's there in Luke chapter 19. And the second event occurs a few days later in a garden. A garden that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. So turn with me to chapter 19 of Luke. So we look at this first event where we see the grief of our Lord. Now, just to give a little bit of context here, the passage that is before us 
comes at a climax. It is the climax of a long section in the Gospel of Luke. A section that focuses on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the goal. Jerusalem is where Jesus will die. Jerusalem is where he will accomplish what he came to do. And this section in Luke's Gospel begins all the way back in chapter 9, verse 51. And I'm going to throw up a few verses here as we think about the context. We see this movement towards Jerusalem, this focus on Jerusalem. 9.51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he, that is Jesus, was determined to go to Jerusalem. And then we read in 13.22, and he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. He's moving towards Jerusalem. We see a few verses later, but at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here. Herod's wanting to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And here we get a sense of his grief the city that kills the prophets and the stone and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now he's actually pointing to his triumphal entry. The moment he will enter into Jerusalem. Then in 1831, we read that he took the twelve aside and he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. But we are told there in that passage that the disciples did not understand anything of what he was talking about. And then we have 1911. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they, that is the disciples, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. See, there's this focus on getting to Jerusalem. Jesus is focused on getting there. And when he asked his disciples, you can see here in the middle of chapter 20, when he asked his disciples to bring a colt, and he sits on it in order to ride into Jerusalem. The symbolism is not lost on the disciples. They know exactly what's going on. They get it. They know that he is, I mean, they know the Old Testament passages. They know he is presenting himself to the nation as their king. And they are pumped. They are excited. Here is Jesus. He's finally coming into Jerusalem. He's going to set up his reign. He's going to destroy all the bad guys, all the enemies. This is it. This is the time. This is when the kingdom of God comes to earth. And so they begin to praise him with loud voices and I'll just pick up here in verse 36 of chapter 19. And as he, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the rows. So they're, they're taking their cloaks off and laying them down. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully. So there's a lot of joy going on here with loud voices for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King! 
who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. They're, they're excited. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. But then something really dramatic takes place. Look at verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. Now, you have to, to realize that when you come, when you're on the Mount of Olives, and I've not been there, but I've studied it. When you're on the Mount of Olives, you, if, you come, if you're behind the Mount of Olives and you crest the Mount of Olives, out before you spreads out the whole city of Jerusalem. You're, you're standing pretty high and there's a valley in between. You can see it, something like this. And out in front of you, you'll see this, this whole city of Jerusalem spread out. And as Jesus sees the whole city of Jerusalem, he begins to weep over it. Saying, verse 42, if you had known in this day, even you, and even the syntax here, the way the wording goes, demonstrates grief and crying because it's, it's incomplete sentences. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which made for peace. Notice it, it's a conditional sentence and he doesn't answer the condition. He doesn't give the, the apotesis here. It's broken. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is quite a startling scene. The word that is used here for his weeping is the word klyo. There are several words in Greek for weeping, but this word specifically emphasizes the wailing with an emphasis upon the noise accompanying the weeping. It's very clear here that this is not just tears streaming down his face. This is audible weeping. This is a loud expression of pain and of sorrow. One commentator put it like this, the words do not mean merely the tears that tears forced themselves up and fell down on his face. It suggests rather the heaving of the bosom and the sob and cry of a soul in agony. We could have no stronger word than the word that is used here. So imagine, here's these disciples, they're all praising and cheering and, and Jesus begins to weep loudly. Quite a scene. It's a scene of very strong emotion. He's weeping and wailing. And this grief, of course, seems so out of place. So contradictory to the praising and the, and the joyful celebration. So why does Jesus experience this opposite emotion? Well, despite the jubilation of the moment, Jesus knew that in a few short days, the people of Israel would reject him. And they would be crying in unison, crucify him, crucify him. And he's also aware that because of, their, because of their rejection of him, that God, God's judgment is going to come down upon them, and specifically upon this city of Jerusalem. And it's almost as if as he looks out on the city of Jerusalem, it's almost as if he can already see the city surrounded by armies. 
He can already see the, the ramps being built up to overthrow the, the walls. He can already see the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, not one stone laid upon another, and the, the, the complete the, the slaughtering of the people within it. He can see it with, those, with prophetic eyes, and he weeps over Jerusalem. He's the prophet. He's, fore, he's foreseen it. He's predicting it. And he's grieving over the fall of Jerusalem that actually did occur 40 years later in 70 AD. And just like the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah who wept bitterly as they prophesied concerning the coming destruction of Jerusalem, so Jesus weeps bitterly in His prophetic role over Jerusalem, over another destruction. Of Jerusalem. Now, why will Jerusalem be destroyed? Well, look at the end of verse 44. You've got that reason right there. Because, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Messiah had come. The one the entire Old Testament pointed to. And they missed it. They failed to recognize Him. Now, there's mystery here. For if Israel had recognized Jesus to be the Messiah, they would not have crucified him. And if they had not crucified him, he would not have brought salvation. I mean, this would not have happened. There's mystery here. Their rejection of Jesus is clearly a part of God's plan, it's part of God's purpose. It was God's purpose for Jesus to die for the sins of the world. And yet, God still holds the nation of Israel responsible for their rejection. And he grieves over their future judgment. Now before we go any further here, I want to apply this. Because I think it's important that we not lose what's going on here and wait till the end of our time. So I'm going to go ahead and sneak in a lesson before we get to the end. And here's the point we want to make. Jesus was grieved over the coming judgment of those who rejected Him. That is, He weeps over unrepentant Israel. He weeps over those who will not weep for themselves. In fact, it's fascinating, just a few, a few days later, He's going to be on His way to the place where He will be crucified. And there are women wailing and He turns to them and He says, don't weep for Me. Weep for yourselves. You see, the things that make for peace. You see that in verse 42. The things that make for peace, peace with God, had been revealed to them and yet they were blind to it. They were hardened to it. We see, but we see illustrated here, what is clearly stated everywhere else in, in the Word of God, God does not delight in the judgment of the wicked. You see that illustrated here. He does not delight in the judgment of the lost, in the judgment of those who reject Him. You see that here? He's weeping over their destruction. Jeremiah 33.11 says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. And hear the appeal here. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? 
Why will you die? And I think that leads us to this question that we need to ask ourselves tonight. Where, where are we tonight spiritually? Where are you spiritually tonight? And are, are you like Israel? Christ has come to visit and you have not recognized Him. Christ has come to you and you have rejected Him. You have known, you have heard the things that make for peace, but you've hardened your heart against it. It's a dangerous place to be. Serious place to be. And I would appeal to you, my friend, may Christ not weep over your destruction. May He not weep. Rather, may you weep in repentance. And may you cry out to God for mercy. Because today, tonight, could be the night of your salvation. Tonight could be the night where you experience peace with God. Tonight could be the night where you recognize Jesus Christ for who He is. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord doesn't wish anyone to perish. So we're told in Second Peter. He doesn't wish anyone to perish, but that all come to repentance. That's the heart of our Lord. It's the heart of our Lord. But now we turn to the second event. We turn to Mark. I'm going to use Mark's recording of this event. Mark 14. This is Jesus' experience at the Garden of Gethsemane. It takes place a few days later. And the sorrow here is a sorrow of a different kind. In the past, in the last event, he was deeply grieved over Israel's judgment. But we're going to see here in this passage that he is going to be deeply grieved and in anguish over the judgment he himself is going to experience. I want to just mention that I'm indebted to some sessions that Jerry White taught many years ago. I used to teach New Testament survey, the Gospels and Acts, and he would come and he would give a few sessions on the humanity of Christ. And I'm going to draw a little bit on those sessions. I want to just acknowledge that up front. But we want to think about two things. And so I'm going to place those two things before you and then we're going to read the passage So as we read this passage, think about the first question. What did Jesus experience emotionally as he faced the cross? And then secondly, what did Jesus see in the cup that caused him to recoil with such horror? Think about those two questions. We're going to begin reading here in verse 32. Then he came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
And he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now we have to understand the context here. We know that Jesus had just celebrated the Passover meal. We know he's been spending some time with his, his disciples. We get that from John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17. He's been pouring into his disciples. He's been preparing them for his death, for his departure, and then for his resurrection. And he's even actually prayed that great intercessory prayer over his disciples. But now he, and you have to think, think of the fact that he must have exercised enormous self-control over his own emotions during that evening as he's pondering his own death. And yet he holds that in as he ministers to his disciples. But then he arrives in this garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press, which is an appropriate name for the place where Jesus would experience the most intense pressure a human being ever experienced. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that he took three disciples with him and went a little further. And like a person who holds it all together during the funeral, but then finds a private place to let loose his, their emotions. So Jesus finally allows himself to feel the emotions of the moment. And we're told here in verse 34, verse 33, excuse me, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. He began to be very distressed and troubled. Here's two of the words we're going to be looking at. To be distressed means to be moved to an intense emotional state because of something causing great perplexity. The word troubled is the word neo. It means to be deeply troubled and distressed. Mark's description of Jesus is intensified by Jesus' own testimony in verse 34. Jesus himself says to his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And you get some insight into the intensity of the grief that Jesus was experiencing in that moment. D.A. Carson writes that it suggests a sorrow so deep that it almost kills. That he could have even he could have lost his life due to the grief. In fact, we're told in Luke's gospel that angels came to strengthen him, perhaps to keep his heart beating. Such was the intensity of his grief. Jesus is alarmed. He's horror-struck. He's deeply troubled. He's disturbed. He's distressed. He's so grieved he's on the brink of death itself. The language all points to Jesus being stretched to a breaking point. And he falls on the ground and he begins to pray. And just a little tidbit there on the side, but how beautiful in his deepest grief, what does he do? 
He prays. He turns to his father. And he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Matthew's account is very similar. Luke's account adds that an angel came strengthening him. It also adds that his agony, and it uses that word agony, it's actually the Greek word agonia, was such that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And it's as if the gospel writers are exhausting language's capacity to express the intensity of the grief that Jesus suffered in that moment. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what did Jesus see in the cup that caused him to recoil in such horror? And we could ask ourselves a question, was it the physical suffering? The physical suffering of being nailed to a cross, to dying an excruciating death. And I cannot believe it. For many have experienced worse death and faced it with courage. This could not have been. Jesus was a courageous man. You could ask yourself, was it the psychological suffering of being forsaken by his disciples, of the crowds jeering him and mocking him, being rejected by people? No, no. It was something much more horrifying than that. The language that we have here is the language of a cup. Drinking a cup. And the language of a cup is used repeatedly in the Old Testament to refer to the wrath and judgment of God upon sinners, upon the wicked. You see it here in Psalm 11. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone. Burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams, it is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Jeremiah, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and calls all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. The cup speaks of a cup of the judgment, the wrath of God. So what did Jesus see in the cup? Well, he, he saw at least two things. Two things. First thing he saw was our sin. Looked into that cup and he saw the foulness and the repulsiveness and the vileness of our sin, knowing that he would have to take it into himself. He would have to become sin for us. That's what the New Testament tells us. He became sin for us. He who knew no sin. How horrifying. The one who knew no shame, who knew no guilt, who knew no impurity, no darkness, is going to experience for the first time in all of eternity shame, guilt, impurity, darkness, sin. He's going to feel that, experience that. But number two, he saw in that cup not only our sin, Sin that he would have to drink and take on to himself. 
But he was repulsed at the thought of falling under the judgment of his father. Now think about that for a moment. You see, Jesus had always been the father's beloved son in whom he was well pleased. But in becoming sin for us, he would also become the object of God's fierce wrath. And no one knew the wrath of God like the Son of God. Jesus was facing, and this really goes beyond our comprehension, he was facing the rupture in his eternal relationship with his Father. That's what he was facing. Isaiah tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And a little later, Isaiah tells us that it was the Lord who crushed him, putting him to grief. It was the Father who crushed the Son, His beloved Son, because of our sin. And there on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? This is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. And it's very critical to understand. It speaks that Jesus willingly, and that is critical, yes, willingly, bore the wrath of God against our sin in our place. That's what happened on the cross. He bore the wrath of God that we deserved in our place. Charles Wesley writes, O love divine, what hast thou done? The incarnate God has died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. The Son of God for me has died. My Lord, my love is crucified. So what do we need to take away tonight? We think upon the grief of our Lord, and particularly the grief that He experienced due to our sin, due to His taking on our sin and bearing God's wrath. The first point I want to make is no one will ever experience more grief than Jesus experienced. And that's an important point to make. No one will ever find themselves in more distress, in more agony of soul than Jesus. No rupture in human relationship can ever begin to compare with the rupture that Jesus experienced with His Father. As J. Oswald Sanders writes, Christ is king in the realm of sorrow. He's king in the realm of sorrow. Peerless in pain. Supreme in distress. Why is that important for us tonight? Well, I'd ask you, are you grieving tonight? Life is tough. Life is grievous. There's a lot to cause grief to our hearts, to bring distress to our souls. Are you you in turmoil in your soul? And I would encourage you tonight, don't believe the lie that whispers in your ear that no one knows what you're going through. That no one can identify with you. That you're all alone. Because it's not true. Remember tonight, 
that we have a high priest in heaven who can in every way sympathize with us in our weakness. He can sympathize in every one of our weaknesses, in every one of our distresses, in every one of our griefs. Jesus knows grief. He knows suffering. He knows distress. He's experienced it. And he invites us to come to him in our time of need. Draw near to Christ. You have someone who can sympathize with you. The second point I want to make tonight is this. That the most intense form of grief was experienced by Jesus due to our sin. B.B. Warfield makes this observation that some of the emotions that Jesus experienced, he experienced not because he was a human being, but because he was specifically our sin bearer. And he writes, there are emotions which, quote, never would have invaded his soul in the purity of his humanity, save as he stood under the curse for his people's sin. The grief that he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane would never have invaded his soul had it not been for the fact that he was coming to bear our sin. It was our sin that caused Jesus the most grief. And if it caused him the most grief, should it not cause us grief? Now here I could go in two directions. Because I could apply it this way. I could say, Jesus was stricken. He was afflicted. He was grieved. Therefore, why? So we can rejoice, right? So we can be liberated from sin. And that would be a true application. And we ought to rejoice. Because we are forgiven. Because we have been released from our bondage to sin. But I want to apply this in a slightly different sense. Because although we have been released from the bondage of sin, we all know that we still sin. First John tells us, don't deceive yourself. Don't ever say that you're without sin. We are still caught in sin. We still fail. We still get trapped in sin. And so I want to ask this question, are we troubled and distressed over that which causes Jesus so much trouble and distress? That is, what is our attitude towards sin when we fall into it as believers? There's a danger that we can, we can learn to live with our sin. We can learn to place it in a corner and ignore it. We can learn to minimize it. We can learn even to justify our own sin. But Jesus, I believe here, calls us to grieve over our own sin. To grieve over it. Jesus himself said, Blessed are those who what? Who mourn, for they will be comforted. The book of James encourages us as believers when we're trapped in sin to repent and to be miserable and mourn and weep and to let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord so that he might exalt us. See, grace flows downhill. Grace always flows downhill. It flows to the humble. And so in the midst of our sin, the answer is to humble ourselves. 
See, the ultimate answer to your sin and my sin, I'm talking about sin as believers, the sin that we get trapped in and get caught in. Here's the ultimate answer. It's a change that occurs at the level of our hearts where we learn to begin to hate our sin, to be grieved over our sin. And we learn to value fellowship with Jesus Christ so much that we recoil in horror at the thought of grieving our Lord. Grieving His heart. My friends, let us not forget what it costs our dear Lord to free us from the penalty and bondage of sin. It cost Him dearly. It grieved Him dearly. And let us always deal with our sin seriously. Let's close in prayer. Father, we ask that right now You would work in our hearts. And You would conform us to the image of Your Son. That You would give us the same outlook and attitude, same outlook upon life as He had. Meet us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.